At the turn of the 20th century, the gospel of theological liberalism told us that salvation could be found in political activism. That if we just changed laws and changed society, that we'd find our salvation. The prosperity gospel tells us today, teaches us to believe that God wants us all to be fabulously rich. The Take Back America gospel tells us that we're fine. It's those people who have the problem, who cause the problem, who are the problem. And the way to salvation is to get certain politicians elected and certain laws passed. And it might be at hard at first for you to see what connects those three things with each other and to the events that we're going to read about in John's gospel today. We'd been in John chapter 11. We were looking at uh, Jesus coming to raise Lazarus and looked at that over the past couple of weeks in a number of perspectives. I'm going to move on past that today, but want to begin reading in John chapter 11, verse 43, uh, and then carry that over to verse 53. This is God's word. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And Father, as we bow in your presence today, we think of those great hymns that we've sung of Christ alone being our hope, of praying, Lord, that you would be our vision. Lord, we pray that by this, your word, and and by your gracious filling us with your Holy Spirit, that we would grow in that desire. Lord, we, we ask it for your glory for our eternal good, and for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
The question that this passage raises for us is the same question that is raised for us by the gospel of theological liberalism, by the health and wealth gospel, by the take back America gospel. And it's a question that is raised in our own lives in a thousand small ways throughout the week. And the question is this, God has sent his son into the world. He's fulfilled the promises that he's made. Are you looking for a Messiah or are you looking for a means to something else? In the first century, the people of Israel all spoke with great anticipation about the coming of the Messiah. And some of them really were anticipating him, really were wanting him to come, were really expecting him. But others, it seemed, were looking only for someone to be a means of accomplishing something else for them. And you know, if you're looking for a means... No evidence for the real Messiah is ever going to be enough for you. The account here before us is astonishing. Jesus, previous to this, had healed a man who was born blind from birth. It was so astounding that the Pharisees questioned whether this really was the man that had been born blind, but his parents came in and they said, no, this is him, and yes, he's been born, or he was uh, blind from birth. And it was due to that, the indisputability of that, that they began to have real animosity toward Jesus, so much so that he left the region, he went about a day's journey away to where John had been baptizing to stay away from Judea. It was the death of his friend Lazarus that brought him back to the region. And it was Jesus' great love for Lazarus and for his sisters that brought Lazarus back from the clutches of death. The miracle was indisputable. Lazarus had been dead for four days. It wasn't merely his family that had witnessed it. There were others who had come out from Jerusalem to comfort them. And they'd all seen it. We're told in uh, verse 18 that Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brothers. You need to understand, I think I pointed this out before, that in the Gospel of John, the, the Jews are not an ethnic designation. It's not Jews as opposed to Gentiles. Because Lazarus was a Jew. Mary and Martha were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. All of Jesus' disciples were Jews. But as John uses that word, uh, the Jews are those in Jerusalem who are the keepers of orthodoxy. They're the keepers of Jewish culture. They're largely comprised of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And the Jews were those who were waiting for the Messiah, weren't they? Well, certainly they liked the idea of the Messiah. But he'd been a long time in the coming. Some of them were older now, and 
It waited their whole lives. And their dreams and their desires turned to other things. You know, Jesus said that he was going to come again. It's been a long time. And maybe the first time you heard that promise, you were filled with great anticipation, but the years have rolled by and he hasn't come and your dreams and your desires have turned to other things. And for these people, Jesus, it was quite evident now, hadn't come to give them those other things. So there are two responses that we see here to Jesus. We're told that, therefore, as a result of what they'd seen with Lazarus, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. There were many who believed who were waiting for the Messiah God's anointed king. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed. And it's the king who's to be anointed. The, the king that was promised and foretold. And, and who could that possibly be if not somebody who could cure the blind and conquer death? Who else could it be? But there were others, we're told, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You understand that they're not going to report with accolade and joy. They're not happy. They report what Jesus had done because something has to be done about him. He needs to be stopped. If you had been there that day, would you have believed that Jesus was the Christ whom God had promised and sent into the world? There were people who didn't. Why was that? Was it because there wasn't enough evidence? He, he just raised a man from the dead. The problem wasn't with the evidence. Listen, the problem was not that they couldn't see that he was the Messiah. The problem was that he didn't want him to be the Messiah. Because following him, it was becoming evident to them, would mean an end to their dreams and their desires and life as they had planned it. And some of those who said that they were looking for the Messiah were really looking for a means now to legitimize their own idolatry. And when idols are threatened, true loves are revealed. Now, you know, the most dangerous idols are not the idols that are made out of wood or stone or uh, precious metals. 
They're the idols that are made out of the imaginations of our hearts, the things that we set our hearts on, that we fix our hearts on. No pious Jew, certainly none of the Pharisees, would have uh, worshipped images of wood or stone or metal. Uh, Certainly in the Old Testament, we see that practice frequently among the Jews, but the captivity in Babylon had burned that out of them. And they no longer did that, but friends, don't think that idolatry was dead. It was alive and well. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The members of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was the was the Jewish ruling court which, which Rome allowed to continue to exist, uh, but very, was very circumscribed. They weren't allowed to mete out the death penalty. And the members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, it seemed many of them had given up the idealistic hope of the coming of any real kingdom of God. And so they substituted a religious replacement for it. How easy it is for us to do that, give up any hope in the real kingdom of God and substitute some religious replacement for it. It's the stuff of the social gospel. It's the stuff of the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. It's the stuff of the take back America gospel. The reality that they lived under, they knew it now. The reality was the Roman Empire. And Rome was powerful. And if they accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, if other people accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed king, things would not go well with Rome. And so they say, see, here's the problem. The Romans, if this happens, if everybody believes in him, they're going to come, they're going to take away our place. In our nation. And that word place, is a, it's interesting because the word, you know, as you look at it, I ask myself, what are they talking about? It, it could refer to the temple. The temple that Herod had built was a magnificent structure. And they, they gloried in it. There, there'd been no temple its equal in size, in grandeur. What matter that it was built for them by a paranoid murderer? What what matter that their blessings came to them uh, through the hands of someone who was debauched and immoral? Well, what does that matter as long as we have our blessings, as long as we have our place? But our place could also refer to the positions that they held. There were tensions with the Romans, to be sure, but in the grand scheme, you know, every one of them there, as part of the Sanhedrin, had better positions because of the cooperation with Rome 
than they ever would have had uh, under the Hasmonean dynasty when they had their independence, when Israel had its independence. Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and that God would add to us, if we do, the things we desire and the things that we need. But they don't really even care if Jesus is the Messiah. They sought to suppress the kingdom in order to maintain their desires. Let me say it again. It wasn't that they couldn't see that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed king. It was that they did not want him to be the Messiah. It's a funny thing about idols, though. They never deliver what they promise. In Luke chapter 19, we read about Jesus as he approached Jerusalem for the last time. We said as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Their great desire was that we're able to hold on to our place, to our nation, and in AD 70, they would lose both of them. The temple would be utterly destroyed. The people would be dispersed. Those who had position and authority in Israel would have it no more. If they were still left alive, they would be exiles. And the very thing that they feared that would happen if they accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the anointed king, came upon them anyway in the rejection of him as the Christ. Let me ask you a question here. What do you fear losing if you submit your life to Christ? What do you fear that you will lose if you submit your life to Christ. Because I want to tell you that if you don't submit your life to Christ, you will lose it anyway. What idols do you have? It's not a question of if you have them, my friends. I know that you do. We all do. The issue is not whether you have idols. The issue is whether you make safe harbor for the idols. Whether you nurse them and love them and feed them and protect them. Religious people, Christian people, don't like to admit to idols. But they have them. And the truth of the matter is, is that if you harbor idols, you would gladly kill Christ. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish 
And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. If you harbor idols, you'll gladly kill Christ. The members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they did so quite literally. And they began to carefully lay their plans to crush him out of their lives by crushing him out of existence because he was a threat to their idols. Their idols of position and place and power. You know, it's surprising at first, but not so if you think through what, what John deals with in his gospel that at the end of his first letter, it, it almost seems like out of nowhere, he ends that letter with the words, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Because the truth of the matter is, is that until the, the taint of the last of sin is purged from us, we'll all have them. John cautions us, cautions you, not to harbor them, to give no safe haven to them, to give no quarter to them in your life. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a beautifully encouraging book to a faithful church. Have you, have you read the book of Ephesians lately? A beautifully encouraging book to a faithful church. Yet later, Jesus himself would warn that church in Revelation chapter 2 that they had lost their first love. So easy to remain looking religious and churchy. And Jesus, listen, if you look at what he says about the church at Ephesus. He acknowledged their perseverance. He acknowledged their moral purity. He had, uh, acknowledged their doctrinal diligence. And all of those things are good and necessary and right. Do we have those things? Perseverance, moral purity, and doctrinal diligence? Well, good for us. So did they. And so did the Pharisees. But something else had come to be first in their hearts. Something else took the place of Jesus. They'd left their first love. You cannot physically kill Christ again. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. You can't physically kill Christ. But we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. They're not doing that physically. They're doing it in their hearts. They're crucifying Christ again in their hearts by harboring idols, by making other loves primary, 
We kill Christ in our hearts. That's the truth of it. If you secretly harbor idols, nurse them, feed them, protect them, you would gladly kill Christ. And you kill Christ not by denying him, but by replacing him. Let me ask you today, what is Jesus to you? Is he God's Messiah, the King, for whom no loss is too great? Or has he become for you just a means to help you achieve some other idol? What are your idols? Can you identify them? If, if you can't, you're in graver danger than you can imagine. Because we all have them. And the question isn't whether you have idols. The question is what are you doing with them? Are you harboring them? Nursing them? Feeding them? Protecting them? Has Jesus become for you just a means Or is he the Messiah, the anointed king? I'm going to ask our elders. Mm-hmm.